0: The French Revolution was the single most tumultuous event of the late 18th century in Europe. Politically and historically, it marked the beginning of the end of the absolute monarchy, and it heralded a new era for millions of individuals who firmly believed in liberty, equality, and brotherhood. But this cataclysmic event also marked changes, major changes in art, literature, and music, changes that were unimaginable just a few years before. Writers and philosophers began exploring the plight of the conflict between the individual and society. Artists began to apotheosize the common man in heroic and noble statues and paintings. And musicians began looking for their own individual style rather than pouring their ideas into a pre-existing classical mold. Such was the position of the German composer Ludwig van Beethoven, born just prior to the revolution and whose rise to fame paralleled that of another overwhelming personality of the early 19th century, Napoleon Bonaparte. This confluence of ideas, events, and personalities produced an environment which helped create one of the greatest early masterpieces of German opera, Beethoven's Fidelio. I'm Nick Ravellis. This is Opera Talk. Beethoven was born in 1770 in the city of Bonn to a family of musicians and, interestingly enough, bakers, all of whom worked in the court of the Elector of Cologne. And every artist worth his salt tried to make his mark in the great imperial city of Vienna and so too Beethoven traveled there in order to study with the elder composer Franz Josef Haydn in 1792. That was the year after the death of Mozart. The young composer didn't end up spending much time with Haydn. In fact, he found the composition lessons rather disappointing. But the move from Bonn was fortuitous as he ended up making Vienna his permanent home. After studying a little bit with Mozart's now well-known rival, Antonio Salieri, Beethoven was ready to write an opera. What was really popular during this period was the so-called rescue drama or rescue opera, which the Paris-based Italian composer, Luigi Cherubini, had made enormously popular during the first two years of the 19th century. These rescue dramas were melodramatic affairs that always involved great heroism in the face of impossible odds, usually involving some intense political background and featuring a woman seeking to rescue her lover or her husband from the hands of some evil doer. The rescue opera had the potential to be a runaway hit for Beethoven because of its popularity. And of course, like many of his Viennese colleagues, he was looking for a way to pay the bills. He eventually chose a libretto by the Frenchman Jean-Nicolas Bouilly, a librettist of Cherubini who had had some success at the Opéra Comique. The libretto was entitled Léonore, ou l'amour conjugal, the triumph of married love. And it had been set by three previous composers, Pierre Gavot. Ferdinando Paer and Simone Meyer, the teacher of the great Italian composer Gaetano Donizetti. Beethoven flirted with other potential operatic projects up until his death in 1827, but none of them really captured his imagination, only Fidelio, which is what he eventually called his only opera. Now, Beethoven's method of writing music is well-known. He struggled mightily and sketched constantly before a work was felt to be ready to be presented in performance. We have existing manuscripts by the composer that show how difficult the process must have been for him with crossings out and hatch marks, with uh, notes flying all over the page, tears and erasure marks all over the surface. These sketches give us a concrete metaphor for Beethoven's difficulties with this opera. There are three extant versions of the opera, the earliest being 1805 and the first revision being 1806. Another later version in 1814 is the version that is most often performed today. With each of the revisions came different German librettists, poets who worked closely with the composer, to work the text into its final form. The title of Leonora is used to identify the first two versions and Fidelio for the 1814 version. The opera enjoyed a life of exactly three performances and then promptly closed. Friends and patrons suggested some revisions and another production of the work took place in 1806, but due to a lack of rehearsal time, performances of the singers and instrumentalists were marginal, and Beethoven himself withdrew the work from production. But by 1814, Beethoven was a famous, well-established composer and interested friends and colleagues pressed for yet another revised new production of his only opera. He turned to yet another librettist to help work with the difficult text. Fortuitously, this man of letters was not only a poet, but a thoroughly capable man of the theater whose instincts helped Beethoven achieve success with Fidelio. His name was Georg Friedrich Treitschke. This revival occurred at the Vienna Court Theater on May 23, 1814, and it was a great success. Although, as I said earlier, Beethoven considered a number of other stories and librettos for operatic setting, nothing ever struck him as being truly worthy, and so Fidelio remains this composer's only essay in the operatic art. The Spanish nobleman Florestan has been imprisoned in the darkest dungeon of an ancient fortress by his political rival and arch enemy, Pizarro, because the young man has threatened to uncover the warden's many crimes. Many have thought Florestan to be dead, but his wife Leonora is convinced that he's still alive. Determined to gain entrance into the prison in order to somehow free him, Leonora has been working there as an assistant to the chief jailer, Rocco. In order to do this, she's disguised herself as a man and called herself Fidelio. Rocco's daughter, Marzellina, unfortunately has fallen deeply in love with Fidelio, and as the curtain goes up, we see her attempting to dissuade a young suitor named Iacchino who lavishes all his attention on her. But her heart is set on Fidelio, and Rocco, her father, approves. This is, of course, an extremely dangerous situation for Leonora because she dare not reveal her true sex or identity. The warden, Pizarro, appears. He has been anonymously warned that the government knows that he's imprisoned people illegally and that they will soon have a surprise inspection. In order to hide his evil, he decides to kill Florestan this very night, thus removing all evidence of his terrible cruelty. He then turns to Rocco to help him with the murder of the young nobleman. After Pizarro's exit, Leonora, having overheard the entire conversation, convinces Rocco that he will need help in his responsibilities in the deep dungeon, and she thus talks her way into accompanying him in order to dig the grave for the prisoner who is about to be killed. Meanwhile, Florestan, languishing in the dark pit, despairs against the bleakness and the silence which surround him. He sees a vision of his beloved Leonora before he finally faints away in delirium. Rocco and Leonora as Fidelio arrive and begin to prepare a grave for the prisoner. He comes to, and despite the darkness, Leonora recognizes the voice of her beloved husband. Pizarro arrives with a dagger and confronts the prisoner, only to be surprised by Fidelio, who leaps in front of Florestan to protect him from the blade. She shouts out, First kill his wife, and reveals herself as Leonora. She draws a pistol to shoot Pizarro, and they all hear a trumpet call announcing the arrival of Don Fernando, a minister of the king. Pizarro and Rocco flee the scene, and the loving couple rejoice in their newfound freedom. In the final scene, the prisoners find themselves in the courtyard of the great fortress. Don Fernando arrives and announces his mission to uncover the night of crimes and release all those who have been imprisoned illegally. Suddenly, Fernando sees the great hero, Florestan, whom he had thought long dead. Rocco, the jailer, explains the story to the gathered crowd and to their amazement, Fernando orders Pizarro imprisoned In his own fortress. Fernando turns to Florestan to release him from his chains but then decides to offer Leonora the opportunity. Only this wife who has been so loving and so self-sacrificing has the right to release her husband from prison. The opera ends with a great hymn to the triumph of a wife's love. As the story of the opera unfolds we find Beethoven and his librettists dealing with good and evil through the use of musical and dramatic symbols for darkness and light. The drama begins in the relative light of the prison courtyard with Marcellina fending off Iacchino's marriage proposals. With the spoken dialogue we begin to think that this opera will be a comic singspiel along the lines of Mozart's The Magic Flute But it soon becomes clear as the music darkens and as we enter the world of the prison dungeon in the second act, that this opera is about some of the most serious and noble themes of all world literature. Beethoven was attracted to this story certainly because of his political and moral beliefs. There were a great number of men of letters, Beethoven among them, who firmly believed in the enlightened ruler, the good prince, the hero who would affirm and promulgate freedom and equality for all, but who would at the same time preserve the benevolent aspects of the aristocracy. This was the great promise of Napoleon, who dashed Beethoven's and others' hopes for democratic rule when he proclaimed himself Emperor of France. Fidelio was a 12-year struggle for Beethoven during which many other composers could have completed their entire life's work. But because of Beethoven's strong convictions, the characters in the drama act more like archetypes or metaphors for human values. Leonora, for instance, is the epitome of self-sacrifice and love. Floristan personifies a wounded but noble humanity. Pizarro is evil incarnate. We cannot look to the libretto or the text for the development of the characters. It is rather to be found only in the music, wherein every bar, every measure, every note points to the struggle not only of the composer in writing the opera, but of the heroine in struggling to give her husband freedom. In order to really appreciate where Beethoven's opera Fidelio lies within German culture at the turn of the 19th century, I thought I would turn to an expert in the field of political science and political history, particularly European history, our friend, professor of political science at the University of San Diego, Michael Pfau. Michael, welcome. Thank you very much, Nick. Good to have you here. Let's talk a little bit about the German-speaking lands just after the French Revolution. How did the revolutionary ideas affect people living in those lands as well as artists and composers like Beethoven?
1: You know, that's very interesting that you talk about lands. The plural there is important because really there wasn't any Germany in that sense as we know it today. There were really 300 independent municipalities or so that were just loosely affiliated into one uh, entity that's similar to the United Nations more today mm-hmm. than, than, than a nation. And so. Beethoven
0: was born in one of them Beethoven was
1: born in one of them in Bonn, in, uh, in, uh, under the Archduke of Cologne. And as such, he was very close to the French. It's uh, right on the Rhine. And he certainly was informed of the French Revolution. And however, the problem really was that the French had something really actively to overthrow, one king. The Germans didn't have an easy target like that. Mm -hmm. They had all individual uh, uh, aristocrats who ran their fiefdoms any way they wanted to So some Germans had it real bad. Uh, Beethoven had it comparatively good. Mm -hmm. He was uh, at liberty to leave eventually and go to Vienna uh, and cross the country, although that transition still was facilitated by the relationship between his uh, uh, duke and the, uh, the, the new emperor in, in, in Vienna.
0: Um, so that relationship made it easier for him to go to Vienna. It, it, I, I take it, well, as Vienna was a center of music at the time, so many artists went oh. to Vienna because it was like the big city, right? Oh, yeah.
1: absolutely. Everybody was there. I mean, by yeah. everybody we really mean at the time, Haydn was still there, Mozart was, was still there, and uh, I understand Beethoven actually met them both. Mm-hmm. And I think, in a way, uh, Beethoven may have been the first sort of new burger or new bourgeois uh, free agent type of, mm-hmm. uh, of composer who had liberated himself from his uh, aristocratic Yeah. Attempts. So uh, although
0: there, were, there was a point in Beethoven's life when he was looking for royal patronage, oh, yeah. it never really came to him. And I think yeah. it, it became clear to him very, very early on in his time in Vienna yeah. that he was going to have to make it on his own. And that was, you're, you're absolutely right, There was a new kind of... musician.
1: Yeah, and it was also a new kind of revolutionary. It wasn't the French revolutionary anymore who wanted to attack the aristocracy and actually wanted to get rid of them. Actually, it was the, the new bourgeois revolution that sort of, or the bourgeois idea of a revolution that took hold in Germany right after uh, sort of small rebellions had been brutally suppressed in a few of the municipalities was more of a, of a revolution that was a gentleman's or a bourgeois now, revolution.
0: So what do you mean by that? that, that they would try to reform the aristocracy somehow from within rather than overthrow it?
1: That's right, because that, they
0: were still the, the major patrons of the arts, and they were the... Uh,
1: principal benefactors that were around and no, uh, and Beethoven certainly didn't want to cut the, the hand that fe- uh, that him. So for all practical purposes what this new budging class of, of entrepreneurs sort of musical entrepreneurs, economical entrepreneurs and intellectuals were looking for were sort of more benevolent Uh, More benevolent aristocrats.
0: Okay, let's throw Napoleon in the mix. Uh, Who early on, of course, is a representative of the ideals of the French Revolution. But then, is it in eighteen o five?
1: Oh yeah, when he when he crowns uh, himself emperor uh, in. Actually, it's a very, very funny situation. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with the scenario that a particular Beethoven idealized uh, Napoleon as the hero of the, of the French Revolution. But once Napoleon and his troops occupied Vienna, uh, uh, Beethoven in, 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 in rage, I understand he was taken to rages apparently, <laughs> uh, uh, changed the dedication, the, the personal dedication of the, ro- of the heroica to Napoleon and just made it to the human hero in general. And I think that's a very good point in, in, in question there. But sort of
0: how, does, how did that, you think, affect Beethoven as a political being?
1: You know, I was wondering about that. You know, it's, it's very difficult to, to look into people's minds. I, but I was wondering what he was thinking when he tried to bring Fidelio actually onto the stage and he had to face French censors. Yeah. And I tried to look up on that what exactly they were objecting to in the story of Fidelio because that was really, in a way... It's, it's revolutionary in a way, but it's a very tamed uh, version of the revolution that that Beethoven tried to put on stage there. And so uh, it was surprising that the French would object, object to their own uh, ideology in a way.
0: Indeed. I think eventually, of course, uh, Fidelio was successfully premiered uh, in, in Vienna. Uh, Thirteen years after Beethoven began writing it, and um, and it did work. It did fly. Thank goodness, Ms. Because we still have it today.
1: But after several revisions, in uh, yeah, I understand, yeah. right? yeah. yeah. Um, Michael, thank mm-hmm. you very much for
0: mm-hmm. helping us with insight about this piece and about Beethoven. <laughs> A sense of struggle permeates just about every measure of this opera and musical metaphors for the progression from light to dark and back again to light occur everywhere. It's been noted that the first half of act one acts like a zingspiel, the often comic form of German opera that included spoken dialogue rather than sung recitative. And indeed that's true. Listen now to the introduction of the first musical piece in the score. A duet between two characters, Marcelina and Iacchino. Marcelina is doing the prison laundry, and Iacchino is trying desperately to propose to her. <laughs> This is music of a very light-hearted quality, almost comic. Even Marzellina's consequent aria has the same breezy quality. But when Fidelio enters the stage, the color changes. Beethoven sets up a reflective, disarmingly gorgeous quartet for Marzellina, Giacchino, Rocco, Marzellina's father, and Leonore, who is, of course, Fidelio. In this quartet, Each character expresses his or her innermost thoughts and desires. Here's the orchestral introduction. It'll give you a a great idea of the change in color and mood. Gorgeous music, but it immediately darkens the score. And Even from that short orchestral introduction, we know that we've entered a whole world apart from the zingspiel quality of the first two numbers. When we actually enter Florestan's dungeon cell at the beginning of act two, we're completely engulfed in darkness. The composer's choice of colors in the orchestra, lower strings, thick woodwinds and horns, timpani, Rhythmic devices like tremolos and pulsing chords that change note values from measure to measure. Even his choice of harmonies, dissonant, diminished chords and chords that are ambiguous in their direction. All of these choices paint a very bleak, hopeless picture of Florestan languishing in the darkness. Here is the orchestral introduction to Florestan's aria. We begin with low strings. Then the woodwinds play a chord. Then repetition, just to underline the darkness. Then three floating chords, which almost seem directionless. A diminished seventh chord just very dissonant more floating chords actually now we've come home harmonically but he moves again lots of empty space here then musical gestures so many of them in fact we almost have to slow down to get them all in more diminished chords the timpani enter Values change. A tremolo. And the introduction goes on like that. I mean, it's all so filled with desperation and struggle. Well, that tells us everything we need to know about Florestan's situation at this point. The great theme is struggle the monumental labor of overcoming tyranny and evil. You can't communicate this great theme without writing music that, in and of itself, makes the artists struggle as well, the orchestra and the singers. We as an audience need to hear the effort exerted in that struggle as well as see it in the drama. Beethoven's choices were the right ones for this work, even if it means that we too, must struggle in order to understand and appreciate it. Now let's take a look at some of the resources that are available so that you can get to know Fidelio before you come to see it in the Opera House. First of all, there's an important recording with Jessie Norman singing the role of Leonora. Her florestan is Rainer Goldberg. This is all conducted by Bernard Haitink. Another really important recording of Fidelio, one of my favorites, is the one conducted by Leonard Bernstein. The florestan in this recording is René Colo, and the Leonora is Gundela Janovitz. There's a classic recording that most of the critics really adore, and that is the one with Leonora, sung by Krista Ludwig. This is a mezzo-soprano singing the role of Leonora, rather unusual, but very effective. And her florestan is John Vickers, all under the direction of Otto Klemperer. There's also a terrific video production of Fidelio, starring the wonderful Czech soprano Gabriela Benachkova as Leonora. Her florestan is Josef Prochka, This is a Royal Opera House production under the direction of Christoph von Doctagny. Now you heard me refer in this segment of Opera Talk to the wonderful biography of Beethoven by Maynard Solomon. Mr. Solomon is a marvelous musicologist and there's no better volume in English that's a perfect description of the life, the times of Beethoven, as well as a description of his creative genius. This is a, a wonderful resource for you. Out of all of these resources, I'm sure you'll find something that will help detail your knowledge of Fidelio, help you appreciate it, and enjoy it much more in the Opera House. Beethoven's Fidelio is considered a masterpiece by some, a magnificent failure by others. But it's surely a work that rewards the student, the listener, and the attentive audience every time they dedicate themselves to truly listening to the work in performance. As you can imagine, it takes a rare group of singing actors and a great production team to bring Fidelio off successfully on stage, but never miss a performance of Fidelio. A great performance of this work is the experience of a lifetime. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera.